0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast for readers and writers. Today, we're delighted to bring you our interview with B.R. Statham, author of While the Emperor Slept, A Taste of Old Revenge, and There Are No Innocents, to name only a few of his titles. Then, for our readers on the run, I'll bring you my flash fiction piece, Invasion, from the point of view of a journal. Tune in weekly throughout September for terrific industry insights and interviews. On September 9th, we'll be speaking with Kate Raphael, author of Murder Under the Bridge, A Palestine Mystery. And I'll read another flash piece titled Cover Girl by my friend and fellow author Melody Campbell. Joan Hicks Booth will join us on the pod on September 16th, and we'll chat about her book, The Best Girl. For our readers, I'll read Axe Husband, my crime story from North on the Yellowhead. On the 23rd, we'll present thriller author Tina Wolfe, the author of Exacting Justice, and I'll read for you a fabulous mystery by Joan O'Callaghan titled Runaway. Then we'll wrap up the month on the 30th with Nate Henley, back by popular demand, to talk about his latest true crime book, The Boy on the Bicycle. You'll remember that last week I reviewed The Boy on the Bicycle and highly recommend it to lovers of true crime genre. This largely forgotten Canadian case of wrongful conviction deserves to be revisited, and Nate brings it to us with his trademark research and sensitivity. It's been a poignant week in world news. Not only did we lose the Queen of Soul, the majestically talented and beloved Aretha Franklin, but we also buried the renowned statesman and former presidential candidate, irreproachable war hero and admittedly flawed human being, Senator John McCain. It's been a week of tears, no doubt about it, but also a week to celebrate the fact that our world is capable and continues to be capable of producing such monumental greatness. Whether in the arts, politics, sciences, whatever field of endeavor you care to name, there are toiling individuals, men and women, who aspire to make our world a better place. And some of those men and women of every race and creed, a select few, will rise to the level of greatness for their contributions. As a writer, as a publisher, and an avid supporter of the literary arts, this gives me hope. I speak to a lot of authors, as you know. It excites me to be a part of this art, this industry of ours, the work of words and wordcraft. I remember when I was a child of maybe eight or nine, listening as my school teacher spoke about the power of words, how they could make us laugh, make us cry, move our minds, and make us think, how words, well chosen and spoken with clarity and compassion, could reach and alter nations and beyond. It thrills my heart to know that among the many, many authors with whom I connect, One may rise to that level of greatness, may one day be recognized for his or her ability to connect with people through their words. Aretha Franklin understood the power of words when she chose to sing that iconic song. She demanded respect for women and for people of color. She demanded and was lifted and was given that respect. She was deeply loved. She rose to that level of greatness of which I speak, through those words, sung in her perfect, undeniable voice. John McCain understood the power of words right up till his dying breath. His crafting of words and symbolism is apparent in every aspect of the past week, in each memorial, in each tribute, right up until the culmination of his funeral service on Saturday. And we, as writers, we may not always harness our power with perfection, but we do understand the power of our words. We know that words can turn screws. They can facilitate or stop the great wheels of machinery. We hold the ability to bring tears, laughter, love, and hatred to our readers, and from our readers. We have the ability to connect Maybe not at the heights of greatness of Aretha Franklin or John McCain, but each of us holds that power on some level. We can create characters that our readers will relate to, and situations with which they can empathize. My tip for writers this week is this. Be aware of your power. Be aware of the ability to connect with readers, and use it wisely and with the best of your talents. And now, please give a huge Dead to Rights welcome to my friend and fellow author, B.R. Statham. B.R. is a prolific author of crime and thrillers, as well as fun pirate titles. He is known to write what he most loves to read, dark noir police procedurals and even darker fantasy sci-fi. Good morning, B.R. Welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you today?
1: I'm, uh, as I say down here, I'm bright and sassy.
0: (laughs) You are. Where are you located?
1: I'm in the heart of Kansas.
0: Oh, nice. in the heart
1: of the central uh, 48 contingent United States.
0: Okay, excellent. And uh, for our listeners, this is B.R. Statham. He's an author of a number of really great titles. I love Murder is Your Business, is Our Business, I should say, There Are No Innocents, A Taste of Old Revenge, and uh, those are just a few of many titles. How many books have you got under your belt right now, B.R.?
1: Oh, published and unpublished? four uh, published uh, four, five, five and then there's about uh, three novellas and then i have uh, as you know a, a collection of smitty short stories that i've put out on my own
0: and what is the the title of your collection
1: well uh there are, well, each one has a, a slightly different uh name but it's uh
2: they're all uh, they're all about a, a hitman by the name of smitty and yes. Each one of them has about
1: all between four and five short stories in them.
0: Okay. Um. Can you give us a couple of titles of the collections?
1: Uh oh! No, you caught me. Kind of caught me flat-handed. I've got my computer off.
0: Oh no, that's okay. I'm looking at, for example, um, the Trillium Caper. Is that uh, is that a no, collection or that, is that a novella? That is
1: something totally different. That's. Uh, that's uh, fantasy science fiction.
0: Okay, so you're That's writing in a, a few different genres. Is that right?
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. I I didn't concentrate in just one genre. I go across the medium. Okay. And then, and I combine genres.
0: I guess what I've seen most often out there is your Smitty series. Can you tell us a little bit about that character?
1: Smitty is a interesting subject matter. Uh, a few years back, there was a, a writing... Uh, prompt on, on the computer called six and, says, and they used to give you words and you were supposed to within six sentences write a story so one day I sat down and I don't really remember what the words were but uh, all of a sudden a hitman in full blue popped up in my head I knew his background story I knew what he looked like and that's what he does so in the first little six sentence story he's a uh, been hired to take out a mob boss, and he does by blowing up his apartment in the dead of winter, and um, from there on I wrote stories about him, about various little incidents where he goes in, he's a guy that, uh, well I guess you could call him a born killer, but he has an odd code of ethics, he never goes after and kills innocent people, he always goes after the bad guys.
0: Okay, so that's why you come uh, up with a title like There Are No Innocents, is that right?
1: Well, There Are No Innocents is different characters.
0: Oh, (laughs) sorry about that. So what are the titles in the Smitty series?
1: Well, I'm getting there. Uh, It's going to take me a couple seconds. Uh, I've got a full-length Smitty novel I'm shopping around. That one is called um, Dark Retribution. And uh, it is, you know, it's the first full-length novel I've written of the guy, and uh, the whole premise is is a, a a very nervous cop that has a, a uh, sister-in-law who is uh, happens to be on the, the back side of the street uh, is next up for a potential serial killer, and he's working cop is actually working on a group that's supposed to be hunting this guy down this serial killer down but they can't find him they, mm-hmm. the, the guy leaves no evidence so out of desperation in order to save his his uh, sister-in-law he uh, quietly contacts Smitty and asks Smitty to find and stop this serial killer so in other words the cop is asking killer to find the killer mm-hmm. and it It goes from there.
0: That's a great premise. What's that one called again? Dark Retribution. And that one you're just putting out to agents and publishers right now. Is that right?
1: Well, more to publishers than to agents. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm sitting around basically waiting for it to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you know how writers are when they're waiting for either from a publisher or from a literary agent.
0: Oh, nobody likes waiting. Nobody likes waiting.
1: It but, seems like I've got I've got great white hair already. I've already I think I've developed another head full of white hair waiting.
0: <laughs> Don't we all just have a head full of white hair? But in the meantime, you've got great titles available on Amazon, so there's plenty to choose from for readers. Uh, <clears throat> tell me about a taste of old revenge.
1: Well, I have two characters that are homicide detectives. Named Turner Hahn and Frank Morales, and uh, they're homicide characters working in a, a fictional uh, precinct called the South Side Precinct. And they go after, uh, they they solve cases nobody else wants to touch. What's interesting about that particular series is, is that uh, every book you get is it doesn't have just one case. They don't follow up on just one case. There's always two, at least two separate and unrelated murders to investigate. So they're hopping back and forth from one case to the next all the way through the book, and they end up solving both of them Mm
2: -hmm. uh,
1: by the time the book is finished. But I thought thought that would be rather unique in uh, detective literature, because you usually don't see that. Mm -hmm. You get the impression when you read police procedurals that they only work on one case at a time,
0: in reality, that's not the case at all. Yeah, they that's right. They are doing exactly what Turner and Frank are doing. They're multitasking. And yes. In fiction, they of, tend to be rather linear, don't they?
1: Yeah. When uh, lo- lovers of genre fiction, like I am, uh, and especially in uh, detective fiction, I thought a multiple murders and multiple different cases would literally be the icing on the cake. A fan like me, mm-hmm. and so Turner and Frank are two unique individuals. One, Turner looks like a, actually he looks like Clark Gable from out of the thirties. He's got the mustache and this sarcastic grin, permanent grin, and the curly black hair. And, and Turner, I describe Turner as a modern-day Neanderthal. He's got uh, shockingly red, carrot-colored hair. And, uh, no neck, and, um, and a bum with an eye cube about, um, you know, 250. At least.
0: <laughs> and there's actually a picture of the pair of them on There Are No Innocence cover, um, which is exactly as you've just described. And their names again are?
1: The like Gable Guy looks like his uh, name Turner Hahn, and the carrot top is... Uh, Frank Morales.
0: So, Turner Hahn and Frank Morales in that series. What are the other titles in that series? Is, um, For example... There Are No
1: Innocences. There Are No innocents is the second one.
0: Mm-hmm. And um,
1: I'm working on a third one, about a third of the way through with the third one now as we speak. I, it really has no title yet because I'm, I'm a, must, I must be a strange uh, a writer because I write... And I really don't come up with a title until the end of the novel.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my
1: theory my theory is, is that somewhere in that title, there's going to be a perfect, I mean, somewhere in that book, there's going to be a perfect
0: title. And that is exactly the way it does work. Even for people who title in advance, they'll often change the title by the time they're done, you know. Um, yeah. For example, yeah. I, I, I usually start with a title because I'm just a real title buff, but I very rarely end up naming it you know, with the working title.
1: So. Yeah, well, you know, I over the years, we all learned these little tricks uh, from one failure to the next. We can remember the failures and try to learn from those.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, uh, title work, I agree with you. I think a title uh, is one of the first two things a, a potential reader looks at. Mm-hmm. And if you have a catchy enough title, then that's that's point number one for you.
0: And I think the and second thing is get. covers, and your covers are fantastic. Um, do you have a single cover artist, or have you had several artists working on it?
1: Uh, right now, I've had uh, the one, the, the Smitty novel, the, the Smitty collections are all one uh, artist. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Javier uh, Carmona.
0: Javier yeah. Carmona.
1: Yeah, he is a Spanish. He's from Madrid, Spain, just outside Madrid, Spain. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a website that I went to, and it's called Deviant Art. And Deviant Art is fantastic. You can get on there, and you can look at uh, artwork from all over the world by artists in many, many different genres. And then you can contact them if you want
0: to, and negotiate with for them doing artwork for you. Okay. And. It is fantastic. I mean,
1: some of these people will work. I don't, you know, I want to pay them for what, for what they're worth, but I have to admit, like most writers, I have a, a very limited budget to work on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was a godsend when I found Deviant Art.
0: hmm Well, your covers you are just them, fantastic. I'm looking at them uh, them. There's Always Time for a Good Murder right now. And is that a Smitty novel?
1: No, that's a collection That's a collection of short stories about Turner and Frank. Okay. Turner and okay. Frank Morales. Mm-hmm. I've, over the years, I've written a number of short stories, as you well know, and I've had them in various e um, and Some have been sold and actually made me money. Most of them haven't. And so I've gone back and I've sometimes these short stories just stack up in my computer and they're not used at all. So I decided to uh, put them together and put them out there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's what I did this time.
0: Okay. So you've also got a Killing Kiss. Is that a collection as well, or is that a novel?
1: That is a novella. And that is a, a Smitty novella. Okay. 70 pages in length. And uh, that's Smitty. Okay. And so... Okay. You know, I, I'm, I think my computer was built in 1956, so it's, for some
0: reason... It's <laughs> One of the first computers old, so. ever used by NASA, right? <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, but you're a writer too, aren't you?
0: Yes, I am, although I've uh, kind of diverged off into a number of other areas of the book industry. Um one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is because I'm just, I'm so interested in hearing the experiences of other writers. So I set myself a goal for 2018 52 weeks, 52 writers. And um, I, I'm well on track to having almost all of those interviews completed for the year, which is really odd, I know, because it's early in the year. But, um, I just I love talking to people about their work. Now tell us a little bit about your sci-fi VR um, because that's a whole other kettle of fish.
1: Well, let's see. And my it finally came up. I have a, a another novel out called Maurice, and it's not quite sci-fi, but it's a combination of genre. It's putting a, together a a detective novelist with ghosts. Mm-hmm. And actually, he's not a detective. He is a, a lawyer. And his main line is, he represents the recently departed. Hmm. And so, uh, think of Perry Mason mixed in with Charlie Chan. Okay. And that would be Maurice. And so what happens, he, he, ghosts come to him that have been re- recently passed over the other side, and they have been foully murdered. Are accused of a murder, and they want to defend their name, and so Maurice takes on the cases.
0: Okay. And he
1: has he has uh, a couple of people. One works on the, the side of the living side that has flesh and blood. And he is one nasty little character when he gets nasty. A guy by the name of Randall Cook, and then his daughter that Tammy, Tammy, Tammy works on the opposite side. She's dead. But she works in the realm of the ghost, of okay. the supernatural, mm-hmm. and they, they both investigate crime.
0: Okay, okay. Well, well, that's pretty. On. That's hey. pretty cool. That's like Cold Case, but with a real twist.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I have another uh, series going on with this little company in England. It's called While the Emperor Slept, and that is—that is uh, that's a little bit of a strange story. There, uh, it's a. Sherlock Holmes. In fact, it strongly should remind you of Sherlock Holmes, the way he does his deduction and detective work. And the strange story about it is, is uh, from Out of the Sky Blue, a literary agent called me and asked me, uh, among other things, if I'd be interested in writing a a historical detective. Well, I used to teach history, and so that was no problem. And I said yes. He wanted a, a Somebody out of the time of Roman times, and he wanted that. He wanted him to act like Sherlock Holmes. And I said, "Sure, I think I can do that."
0: Well, so that's another the, really that fantastic title. While the Emperor Slept. I, I mean, it's so evocative. Um, it puts you right into the time and place. And I'm looking at the cover for it, which is also really brilliant.
1: Yeah, now that's not my artwork. I didn't hire that. That that's the artwork of the company, a little company called uh, Endeavor Media out mm-hmm. of. Uh, London, and, um, but, um, what's interesting about the story is I wrote the novel, sent them off to it, and this guy is really high up in the, in the ranking as far as literary agents go, and he didn't like the story. Oh. <laughs> he just didn't like it, you know, and I did exactly like he wanted. The story actually flows quite well, but, yeah, he didn't want it, so I went out on my own. hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, the
0: one thing I've learned through all these years working in this industry is that it is pretty darn subjective. Um and for many new writers, they get so frustrated by that because um you know, we put so much into our work. And uh you know, when you've been around in the industry, I know you've been around a long time. It's almost expected at this point, you know. Um at least for me, like one of the reasons why I set up my own a uh, little publishing house with, with Alec is exactly because of that, because the work is so very subjective, you know?
1: Well, an example would be me. In 1981, when I was a 20-year-old, I sold a science fiction novel to uh, Doll Science Fiction, which is a big, big, big science fiction publishing house in New York City, paperback
2: mm-hmm. company. And they paid me the standard, and, and my...
1: At that time, my theory was if a book sells uh, from a major publisher and it actually sells enough to warrant paying you royalty payments, then it's
2: been a successful novel. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not the case. I published that in 1981. It's supposed to be the first of the
1: series. I sent the second one off to them and they didn't want it. And it was from 1981 to about 2005 before I actually got published by anyone else
0: yeah yeah well what i'm hearing across the board is that an awful lot of mid and uh moving into the high level authors are being dropped or relegated um left right and center all across the industry so it is it's very frustrating and um you know it's it becomes a question of you got to know why you write as one author said to me you've got to know why you're doing what you're doing and um You've got to make it work for you within that confine because, you know, the, the chances of real monetary success are so low.
1: Oh, no. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it's been studied here often that the people who make a real full time living and comfortable living at writing uh, novels, writing fiction, is you probably could write, count them on ten fingers.
0: Oh, yes. At most. That's being generous, and, I think.
1: And the rest of them, I've got, they're teaching, or they're, they're car washing, or they're doing something, you know. Yeah.
2: To supplement yeah.
1: their income. Yeah. For me, I, it was never, I never thought I'd be a Stephen King or a James Patterson or anything, something that big. I never really wanted to be, you know, still mm-hmm. don't want to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But it would be nice if, if I made enough money to be able to turn it back around and, and and stuff it back into my writing Mm -hmm. and buying advertising and stuff like that yeah if i could just make it you know level yeah i didn't have to spend any money because i was making just enough to do what i needed to do yes
0: yes yeah i i hear you ultimately i think
1: ultimately what i think most writers are are storytellers yes And if you're a a natural storyteller, then the problem is is you're going to tell stories regardless of whether you're paid for it or not.
0: Yes. (laughs) Which, of course, hurts the industry because we're all out there and we're all doing our thing. But... You know, we have to do what we have to do. Nobody tells a painter, well, don't paint so much because you're hurting the industry, you know. I mean, right. a painter will paint and a writer will write. It really is that simple. I get totally annoyed with people who think, "Oh, well, the market's so flooded, you know. Um, well, what would you like us to do? Stop writing? Because that's not going to happen.
1: Well, the other thing that you said about the market being so flooded is uh, the market is so flooded with the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to publishers mainly to publish but literary agents as well, and that is publishers find come to the conclusion that they the only way they can tell is that they find the next the next uh, lead child or mm-hmm. James Patterson mm-hmm. or stephen king and so and please Brian throw out the,
0: some female names there because it is so tiresome to hear these top few and they're all men uh, uh, well yeah. It's uh, just totally tiresome to me as a woman, you know, because uh, <laughs> for obvious reasons.
1: <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I can understand that, and I agree with that. You know, the big the big people are, by and large, vastly majority male.
0: Oh yeah, this year the Globe and, and Mail uh, here in Toronto published their top uh, their top ten author list for Canadian authors, and I don't think. I don't think there was a single woman on the list. I may be misquoting. There may have been one, but I don't think there was even one. And um, it was pretty damn annoying. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. Uh, Mm It's kind of
1: fascinating if if you look at it from the publishing literary point of view. There is a a huge number of uh, women in that end of the industry. Mm-hmm. It seems like, especially as literary agents. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, And so it's kind of strange that sisters would not help sisters out. In one well, you state. know
0: what it you is, what I- though. It's all what you were starting to say there before I so rudely interrupted you. Sorry, B.R., but you had started to go down the, um, the concept, which I totally agree with, that uh, the publishers and agents are looking for more of the same. Case in point, a girl on... On a Train, which was a great book. I'm not knocking it. The Girl on the Train, which, you know, it was a terrific book. But how many books with Girl in the title came out in the following year? Oh,
2: yeah. That's a perfect example.
0: More and more and more of the same. Now, that was the case of a top female writer, so I've just shot my own argument in the foot. But uh, I think most people understand that. It actually
1: began after a a book came out called. the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo.
0: Yes, which was, of course, the Scandinavian author. Um, and that was a terrific series, published, I believe, yes, posthumously. Was, right? I enjoyed I
1: mean, the heck out of that text. Mm-hmm. You talked about Graham gruesome, and, and uh, Dark. That, that series was exactly that.
0: Yeah. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, I, I liked it anyway. I mean, I don't... Um, I don't have a problem with reading certain things that other people maybe do. Um, I really liked the whole Girl with the Tra- Dragon Tattoo series. I found it kind of unputdownable. Um, but again, case in point, every book for the next three years had girl in the title.
1: Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. 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 You bet. Yeah. Well, now, here, here's another example. Lee Child comes out with a character by the name of Jack Reacher. Mm-hmm. Which is a unique character, and I, I I enjoy the hell out of Jack Reacher. I mean, I, every every book he comes out with, I'm going to buy.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: just that simple. But now everybody, all the other writers are getting on, and they're when they submit their stories about this characters they've developed. What's the first character they compare him to? It's Jack Reacher.
2: Yeah, you know? yeah.
1: And that's exactly what the uh, publishers are looking for. So. Mm-hmm. I don't know what
0: to do. And I mean as a writer, I, I, I you know, again it comes down to what are you trying to do because I've talked with writers with all different kinds of um Ideas and objectives and goals, and uh, some are looking for that bestseller, and they will conform to these things because they have to, and they're quite open about it, and that's fine. And they're quite readable, just the same. I'm not knocking any of them. Others simply can't conform. Um, they're looking to do something different and something unique. And if that's the muse you've got to follow, then that's the muse you've got to follow, and you just have to understand where that muse will lead you. <laughs> Or
1: well, not, the whole thing The whole thing is is actually the market is much wider than that. I mean, much much wider. There are niches people writers could get themselves into, and they may not meet, meet the you know the popularity of the Stephen King, or mm-hmm. all the big, big out there. But they would, and I'm not even saying they make a the comfortable living at it. But they would be X number of readers who prefer that particular niche, Mm -hmm. and they would be loyal members, they would be loyal to that brand, you know, and, uh, but for some reason or another, that major publishers just simply do not believe that they can, they can turn a profit by um, feeding that, those individual niches, so
0: it's got to be a super book or no book at all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and I mean, there's just, there's no, there's no way of measuring that as you go. I would think that Maurice would fit into one of those niches, um, that you're talking about, because I know that there's a whole subculture of people who absolutely love ghost stories, and, uh, anything yeah. in the supernatural.
1: Yeah, I, I would think so, too. Um, uh, the the thing about Maurice that I like is that, um, he does play with Perry Mason a lot, and, mm-hmm. and uh, there is, a uh, in most of the stories, I haven't written that many of them, uh, unfortunately, Maurice is kind of on the backside of uh, the list of things I'm writing, so I, he's not up, up the forefront, and I'm constantly writing on him, but in all of his the stories, there's always one, case, one scene or two where he's in court, and he's, it's a court scene, and yes. it's dramatic. Work there, but then ghosts. While in the court scene, ghosts start drifting in and out that only he sees, maybe what another person sees. And they're pointing to this character or that character, saying that that guy is the murderer, or that guy has something to say. And Boris has got to figure out without making himself look like he's going crazy in court. Mm-hmm. He's got to figure out how to pull that character, that witness, up on the stand
0: and pull that information out of him. Okay, yeah. so he's got another challenge. Uh, aside from just solving the case, he's got to justify how he solved it in a way that will seem reasonable to flesh-and-blood people in the court.
1: The jury. He's got to satisfy the jury. The jury, obviously, is not going to believe something is that they think that that lawyer is talking to the dead. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that should be a, an interesting call calling card for a lot of people in that particular niche, and uh, and I really ought to get back on to him and and write a little more about it. But I came up with another character about oh my gosh, about two months, three months ago, and the idea here is, have you ever read any uh, Craig Johnson's uh, Longmire novels? No. Craig Johnson, and he's not a big name out there in the world, but he's he's been a successful writer himself, and he writes the detective series, but it's actually more the police procedural series, but Longmire is the name of a sheriff out in Montana.
0: Now, I believe that Netflix or one of the other big yeah. uh, vi- video organizations mm-hmm. came out with the Longmire series, and we did watch a little of it, so I am familiar with the premise for the story, yeah.
1: Well, the books are a little bit different. I mean, the characters in there are Longmire, what Netflix created for, better version of Longmire is pretty accurate. But there's, anyway, uh, it, always, it seems like always when you make a film, or a TV, made for TV film, it's not exactly the same as the books are. They're roughly following the format of the books, but it's not exactly the same. So mm-hmm. I would highly recommend that you, you buy a, a Longmire novel and read it first, and Compared it to, and I think you'll find out that the novel is far, far better than the movie. Although I will say the Netflix series is outstanding. You know, mm-hmm. but uh, anyway, uh, I what I and I, I confess again this that, this discussion we had about everybody who wants to compare their character to Jack Leacher.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This character I come up with is the guy's name is Lenny, and he's just out of the army like Leachur. He's been in criminal investigations by a creature. And he comes from a small county out in the plains of a Panhandle of West Texas. And his father kicked him out of the house when he was 18 years old. And he immediately went to join the Army. He's been in the Army for 20 years. And now he's retired. And the only home he's ever known is in this county in western Texas. Mm-hmm. And so he gets on the bus and he comes back to Well, his dad's dead. The only living well is a lady but his grandmother, eighty eighty seven year old grandmother. And a Texas sheriff who he's known since childhood, who actually it turns out was his protector all through the years because when he was in high school he was a he was always in trouble. And this sheriff, although he was a pretty hardling, actually protected him from his father and from other things. So 20 years later, the sheriff offers this this guy a job as the sheriff's deputy. And so I'm trying to put the character of Longmire with the character of Jack Reacher and put him in a. Uh, describe the West Texas Plains. I don't know if you've ever been to West Texas which is, if you ever want to go to a place that's empty, <laughs> empty, except for long, longhorn steers and oil rigs, mm-hmm. go to wet Texas. And so uh, I'm oh, I'm three-quarters of the way through with that one. And again, we'll start doing the the publisher search get on that, but I'm quite excited about this guy. I mean, mm-hmm. This is another series I want to write. And uh, it's really... It's really unique in that Lenny and his grandmother talk about the past. Mm-hmm. About why the family went this way and why, why did Dad hate him so much. And there's all kinds, and, and in small towns all across the world, it doesn't matter just Texas, but all across the world,
0: and in every culture, small towns have them secrets. Yes.
1: Some secrets are very dark and want to be kept in the, in the secret, in the dark. Some secrets are just funny, you know. But every town has small secrets that are hidden from view. Yes. And because he's a deputy sheriff, and he has, and he knows everybody in town, and about half the town of his relatives is doing, related to him, he's by church that's going to be delving his nose into these, secrets, these family secrets. And I think that's one of the things that would excite a reader is that some towns can be silly, very
0: next <laughs> <laughs> and this, and this little western cowboy town is very, very neat, okay, okay, well, I like the concept a lot. I mean, it really does sound like an interesting one, um because you've got you've got the cop who's also got the war experience, and he's also got a reaching into the past almost kind of feel, which is always really nice for a reader. Readers love that, you know.
1: Well, I agree. I, you know, in writing, you can't, and that's what gets me about all these copycat characters that we see reading over and over again. You take the original, like a Jack Reacher or a Longmire, and the original version of that is the guy, that the person does have depth. He does have a personality.
2: And mm-hmm. you
1: may not agree with it. I don't agree with Jack Reacher's lifestyle at all.
2: Mm-hmm. So, I I, I can cope with it, and I, you know, I can play with it back and forth. But mm-hmm. then
1: along comes the copycats, and suddenly you, what you have is a cardboard character. You don't yes. have an in-depth personality. You just have a, a pastiche of the real thing.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, then he comes along, and I know exactly where he came from. I know, I know what he likes. I know what version of beer he prefers. I know. He doesn't like to eat breakfast too much. I know, you know, I just know a lot everything about the guy.
0: He's well-rooted. So. He's uh, well-rooted or well-grounded in his place, it sounds like.
1: And I think people want to know that.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, they
1: really do want to know
0: that. I think so, they do too, B.R. Honestly, I I do. I think that's the kind of characters that readers are really craving, even when they don't know it. Because we all are saying now the the common thing that you hear is, there's just no time to read. And yet, if somebody picks up a book, and there's a character who's introduced in the first page that grabs their attention, they will keep reading.
1: Absolutely. Okay. Right. And that's the other thing about writing, right, one over the years, is capturing the reader. If you don't capture the reader in about the first five paragraphs, you're not going to capture them at all.
0: That's right. And I would go further and say the first paragraph because I know what people's attention abilities are these days, and they're very low. Um, people, readers, are generally unforgiving. I mean, unless ten friends tell them, no, 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 stay with it past the first page, you're going to love it. You know, but who's got ten people talking in your ear, you know?
1: Right, exactly, yeah. Well, that's the one I thought I, did. I wasn't particularly happy with with the girl on the train. I I started to read that three or four times and uh, to be honest with you for me the first five pages is just too slow.
0: Yeah, and uh, let me be good. one of the people who tells you it is worth it. It's a different kind of story, it's a different kind of character. It's a very female perspective um but it does really come together and it does really redeem itself. It's um it's really quite a story. It's one of those ones that stays with you. It's um not a big story; it's a small story, but it gets into okay. your your central nervous system because um, it's got a real creep factor.
1: Well, in Lenny, and when I thought of, originally thought of Lenny, two things popped into my head at once: I, I the title, and that's it, Lenny. That's all there's there, all there is in the, the title, and I thought in that itself, just one word name. And that might make some people interested in the them figure out, well, who's this guy? You
2: mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. The
1: second thing was, is that in the very first paragraph, you find Lenny he's being tossed out of the back door of a jail.
0: Yes. Get
1: <laughs> been on, been on the weekend drunk, and they decided to they arrested him, and he sobered up, and they threw his butt out the back door. And, and then he's standing there at 2 o'clock in the morning, out in the middle of nowhere, a little country town, and his cousin drives up in a pickup truck. Picks him up and says it's time to come home, and they, he drives into his grandmother's house, and that's where the whole story begins. From there,
2: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. so I was going to say I think the first page captures the, the the will capture the reader tremendously there, and then the, the story just gets dark, more dark and more complex as it goes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But you know, one of the things I agree with people that don't have time to read. I'm. I will be 69 years old in May, and I, I have to confess. When I was a young man, I read everything I could get my hands on. Same everything. here. It didn't matter what it was. You know, I read. I even read the one ads from cover to cover. So mm-hmm. I read everything. But the older I become, the less I read. Yes. And I find myself regretting that. But the less I read is because uh, I can't find anybody that interests me. Mhm. So I have a few writers that I actively look for and when they come out with something that to read I'll buy them all the time, you know. Yeah. But yeah. finding somebody new is extremely difficult.
0: Mhm. Uh, Reed Farrell Coleman is taken
1: has taken over the Robert B Parker's uh, stories about a uh, sheriff in Maine. And, uh, I find out, uh, I found, discovered him by accident, kind of like Robert Parker's stories, and, um, found this, guy, and Lee Terrell Coleman took him over after Robert Parker died, and all of a sudden I found me a new writer, so. hmm but it's extremely difficult to find one. And I try. I go out and I'll buy this book and I'll buy that book. Mm-hmm. I'll read the first page and go, Pfft, you
0: know, out in the trash goes. Yeah. I, I uh, have become a big fan of Audible over the last couple of years because I just don't have the time to invest in getting to know new writers um, the way I would like to. Uh, because at the end of the day, I, I mean, I have a full-time job. I have a family, like a lot of people. Um and plus my side business and uh, my own writing and things like that and all the networking that that entails. And at the end of the day, when I crawl into bed with my book, I'm lucky if I can get through a paragraph before my eyes close. So yeah. what I've started doing is I listen to Audible while I'm out for my daily walks and things like that, trying to get my little bit of exercise. And it's helped a lot. Like I can actually get some exposure to some people that I wouldn't otherwise know, you know.
1: Yeah, well, that, that makes sense, you know. Uh, I haven't done that yet, uh, and I, I, well, if you're a right reader and you enjoy literature, you still like the feel of a book in your hand.
0: You do, you and, do, but I think the transition because I, I flipped over to Kindle at one point too. Um, I only buy books really now as gifts or um, when I know the whole family's going to want to read them. Um, in that case, I will buy the hard copy. But other than that, I definitely am a Kindle reader. And so it was a small transition for me to go over to Audible. There's There are different mediums. For example, um, a print book has that feel where you climb into the book and you get lost. A Gosh. Kindle book can have the same feel when you're used to it. But it takes a little getting used to it. But an Audible is quite different, particularly if it's narrated by the author, um, because there's something about uh, the writer's breath into my ear that is quite different. It's a lot more intimate than a book. Yeah, um, I can see that. And yet, in some ways, it's less intimate because you can be distracted when you're listening to Audible. Um, other people can try to talk to you, they don't notice your earphones, or if you're out walking like I am, there's traffic to pay attention to, whereas when you sit down with a book, as we know, if the writer has captured you, they've captured you fully, and, you know, you're not aware of anything else.
1: No, you're, you're on a different planet altogether.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But, on the Audible book, I would imagine that the, especially if the author's, uh, reading it, uh, I, I'm assuming that the author's got to be rather uh, professional at being able to
0: read it without all of the, you know, the ums, ums and the ahs and the trips. Yeah. Absolutely, and uh, the uh, recommendation I that hurt. I hear I most be of all, in, to do that. yeah, in the audible world, the recommendation I hear most of all is, if you're the average person without that kind of broadcasting experience, then you really should hire somebody. But um, the first Audible book I ever listened to was a John Grisham, and he read it himself. And I have to say, what a voice. It really did catch yeah. me. Now, I've listened to many since. We listen to them in the car as a family when we're traveling. And most of them are not narrated by the authors. The occasional ones are. Um, now, but, what
1: is it about Grisham? Pardon? Is it, is, is what is it about Grisham's voice? Is it a, its tone, or is it that Southern drawl?
0: Both. Both, but it's also more than anything, clarity. It really does come down to clarity, whether your narrator is male or female, um, because I've listened to about an equal number, and some of them, when you listen to the first couple words, the voice is like nails on a blackboard, but the clarity is so good that, you know, you find yourself getting drawn in. When there is no clarity, you just get annoyed. There has to be good clarity above all and then after that, it's about the texture of the voice, the resonance, the feel that the reader has for the story. You know, is there animation in the voice at the correct places? Right. Things like that come into play. But above all, it has to be clarity.
1: The reason why I ask that is that a few years back, there was a study about uh, commercial pilots flying passenger planes,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they did a they did a what the, one of the questions was: When do you feel the most confident about a pilot when he talks to you and it turns out that people like uh, that come from the deep south that have this southern twang
2: mm-hmm.
1: they say they listen to a, a pilot a male's voice with that type of twang in it and for some reason they just feel more confident that the guy knows what he's doing
0: <laughs> which it, is it, another concept really we've got to change because there's a lot of women out there that know what they're doing
1: <laughs> yeah I, I understand that I understand that
0: mm-hmm. but but again, that comes thought, down to our, our social prejudices, and they are so deeply ingrained, and um, it's really hard oh, to knock yeah. them out.
1: Yeah, the thing about that Southern Wall is that uh, that if anybody takes a school about the camp, you know, the greatest camp in the world is a guy from Alabama. But you don't expect a guy from Alabama to be teaching at Harvard.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know? And that's... that's uh, that's a socialism point of view. That is just totally wrong. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But, uh, oh, we do have a lot of them, don't we? We've got a lot of them. Br, tell our listeners where they can find you. I know that you're on Facebook.
1: Well, you you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Bryant R Statum. I think that's the way it's figured out, Pat. I'm also on Google Plus. Mm-hmm. Um you can find me on Amazon and and I think uh, Barnes and Noble is still around. You can find me there. Mm-hmm. Or Endeavor Media. You can type in Endeavor Media and which is based out of London like I said, out of London, England. And they sell their primary push is ebooks. And so you can buy an ebook from Endeavor Media and that's about it for now.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I would say the main place is probably Facebook and Amazon. If you look for BR Statum on Amazon, you're going to find all these fantastic covers, fantastic titles. Um, and Statum is S T A T E H A M for our listeners. Right. Thank you very much, sure. BR. I really appreciate your joining me today and giving us this time.
1: You bet. I'm uh, glad. always glad to talk to anyone. I've uh, that- The bad thing about me is I can talk
0: forever. (laughs) Well, you've got a lot to say. My personal thanks go out to B.R. Statham for joining us today on Dead to Rights. And now, I'm going to bring you a strange little story, rather outside my usual style. It was a result of a writing prompt on Twitter years ago, where we writers were asked to choose an inanimate object and speak from its point of view. I strongly recommend this as an exercise for all writers. If we call ourselves writers, we must be willing to hone our skills, and what better way than to engage in various skill-boosting exercises? I hope you'll enjoy this short, short story, titled Invasion, from the point of view of a journal, which can be found in North on the Yellowhead, my 2014 collection. Invasion, from the point of view of a journal, by Donna Carrick. It's an invasion of privacy, that's what it is. He holds me in grubby hands, turning me about. He splays me like a fish, only to slam me shut when he doesn't like what he finds. Words, beautiful words, the bond we shared, she and I. She used to tell me all of her thoughts and dreams, but that was in another lifetime, before jealousy and rage, before he came. Now it's barely a flake of her life I'm privy to, but what I see is more than enough. His mood changes. Although he doesn't say a word, it's in the way his hands press against me. This must be what she felt when he tried to kill her, hands wrapped around her neck, fingers pressing, stars exploding behind her eyes, welcoming her to the land of perpetual night. He curses. What is it? His filthy thumb has left a mark on me. Knowing she will understand his villainy, he scrubs it, but I hold firm. I will not allow it to be erased. At last, proof. A door opens in another room. It must be her. He shuts me quietly, setting me on the nightstand. So clever. She will never suspect he's been violating me, using me as a catalyst for his violence. She moves slowly, in no hurry to greet him. Words are spoken. He leaves me and I hear the refrigerator door. She joins me, sits on her bed, too weary for tears. There were tears last week, though, the day she told me she was pregnant. It should have been a happy occasion. Instead, she wept, smearing ink with salty drops, finally shredding the page. She reaches for me. Ah, dear friend... So well I feel your pain. Even in her grief, her touch is loving. She turns to that last page, sees his mark. For a moment, her eyes are wide at the extent of his invasion. Then, resignation reclaims its rightful place. Reaching for her pen, she writes a final whisper, laying the words out over his mark. There must be something more to life than this. And so ends Invasion, from the point of view of a journal. I hope you've enjoyed hearing it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. It's rather dark, I know, but um, something to think about. If you're a published author and would like to be featured on Dead to Rights, email me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and mention Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. We'll be glad to hear from you, and there are still a couple of slots open for 2018. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. On Twitter, we're known as at Dead to Rights Pod. Please help us to continue to bring you new and established authors. Podcasters rely heavily on your feedback and support. This is a non-profit endeavor, but you can help by simply subscribing absolutely free at your favorite podcast platform. We're available at iTunes or at Google Play. Simply look for Dead to Rights under Podcasts. And while you're there, please share your love. A good rating can move our podcast up in the rankings and help us to bring you more authors and more stories. Thanks for doing this. It means a great deal to us here at Dead to Rights. You can find me, Donna Carrick, at donnacarrick.com or on Facebook under Donna Carrick or Carrick Publishing. My Twitter handle is at Donna underscore Carrick or at Carrick Pub. My better half, Alex Carrick, is at alexcarrick.com or on Facebook. You can tweet him at Alex underscore Carrick. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, as is all other story-scoring music. You can tweet with Ted at Ted Carrick or follow his YouTube channel at Ted Carrick Music. Be sure to tune in next week when we'll bring you an interview with Kate Raphael, author of Murder Under the Bridge. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.
1: signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told, but the years have turned my eyes gold, and I told you what you told me, we'd never be in the, in the same boat for free, yet it rides, let it rot.